0: Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be disturbing, frightening, and even in some cases, offensive. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Hey, there is very adult content ahead and you have been warned. grab your favorite drink, relax, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we're going to be examining another ghostly location, but this time we have a listener request. So I'm going to be kind of killing two birds with one stone today. But before we get into all of that, we will be playing our drinking game as always. Please remember, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight, because I'm such a loser. Since today's episode will be Spanish-themed, well, your drink of choice should also, well, be Spanish-themed. So sangria, horsata, quemada, whatever, what's your whistle, really? All right, now for the game part. Every time I say Palacio, that will be a single shot. And every time I say Madrid, that's going to be a double shot. And for those of you lightweights that are drinking sangria, you better double that shit up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump head first into today's Dark Enigma, and the story of the beautiful and tragic Palacio de Linares. So let's hit it my heathens, or in Spanish, Vámonos. Looking down with a haughty gaze, the Marquisa de Linares, her gold encrusted gown screaming at the seams well, would tempt one to mumble something about lipstick and pigs. But the portrait, part of a pair by Pradilla of Juana La Loca fame, hangs in the private office of the -the over-the-top gilded-age mans the Marquesa and her husband built in 1872 on the Gran Via of Madrid. It was the greatest palace built in the Spanish Belle Epoque, a temple of contemporary fine art and, without dispute, the richest one among the modern ones of the court, claimed none other than Eugenio Rodriguez Ruiz de la Escalada, the Elsa Maxwell of Gilded Age Madrid who wrote under the name Monte Cristo. Today, it is known as the Casa de América. Constructed over 18 years and inhabited for only 11 and abandoned for a century, the Palazzo de Linares sits in the literal and figurative shadow of the more famous Palazzo de Sabelas across the street. So, despite a legend of incest and a murdered love child, as well as being one of the most ineffable, lavish homes, it has remained largely off the Madrid tourist path. José de Murga y Riolod, Marquis de Linares, was born in 1833 into one of the richest quasi-new-money Bosque families in industrial-era Spain. His financier father had made a large fortune in the Americas and railroads. According to legend, the heir fell in love with his future wife, Rayamunda de Asorio y Otega, who was allegedly the daughter of a cigar seller, but he was forbidden to marry her by his father, supposedly because of her unknown parentage. When his father died, Jose, now one of the richest men in the country, married Rayamunda anyway. However, in the midst of their nuptial bliss, the newlyweds found a letter from his deceased father outlining a scandalous but relevant bit of family drama. That's right, his new wife was, in fact, his half-sister, as her mysterious father was none other than his own father. Well, there's just one problem with all that you know what it is? None of it is true. That legend has been refuted by the Spanish journalist Torcuato Luca de Tena in Spain's ABC, as he reports that Raimundo's own mother gave her away at the wedding, and it's unlikely that she would have done so in the face of incest. Although, man, he was richest man in the world. Yeah, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe not. But this is Spain, and the Linares were a reviste lambs, ready for societal slaughter. So, while the legend may seem sufficiently outrageous, it grows, well, even more sinister. The Linares allegedly got a papal bull signing off on their marriage from Pope Leo the Thirteenth. Tilted casti convivere, the papal permission slip stipulated, that the two could stay married but must remain chaste. But they could not abstain and they ended up with a child, a daughter they were said to have murdered at birth to keep the incest secret. The corpse was purportedly buried between the walls of the palace and thus her ghost is said to have haunted the place ever since. Whatever could have inspired such a misleading tale? For an answer, one need only to step inside the limestone-clad palace. Nearly every room is a visual Gasconde of wealth. Gold, lacquer, exotic woods, crystal, and marble. Lots and lots and lots of marble. The home is so opulent, it makes another famous 19th century aristocratic palace across town, the Museo Cerral Bow, look, well, humble. No wonder Madrid society liked to say that the couple never actually had their food cooked in their house, but instead ordered every meal from the restaurant La Hardy, which, by the way, still exists. To make matters worse, the Marquis refused to follow the recent tradition, started by the Marquis de Salamanca, of opening one's palace doors to any of the curious population who wished to tour it. Given how strenuously the Linares strutted their wealth, they were lucky to get off with nothing more than the incest rumor. The tour of the palace, because it is now open to the public, begins on the ground floor, which was the private level for the Marquise. The floor above, the piano room, was for the Marquesa and visitors. The palace's top floor, which is still close to the public, was mostly just servants' bedrooms. Visitors enter through a stark, white, oval hall, floored with blocks of dark wood, installed originally to muffle the clatter of horses' hooves, on through an incest-filled, to, well, destreetify street, you and make you smell better, right? It's an incense filled vestibule between two simple sets of doors of mahogany and glass, and you are in. The rooms and the hallways of the ground floor are floored in mosaics. Given that these were meant merely for personal use, they kind of give a hint of the splendor yet to come. A music room with paintings done in grey monotones above the doors by Manuel Dominguez and embroidered with Leon silk wall coverings. everyday dining room, that is, anything but, well, every day, with its remarkable tapestries depicting Jean de la Fontaine fables, a renaissance style wood paneled library made famous in the film Patrimonio Natiale. To access the excess of the piano room, one must enter the next stage of oligarch heaven or, as I like to call it, Wasp Hell. Ascending by way of the palace's bifurcated Carrara marble staircase, flanked by walls of colored marble, gold decorative trim, allegorical paintings by Manuel Dominguez, and lit by swooping French brass candelabras in the hands of brass nymphs. That's right, I said nymphs. Get over it. The French part was paramount as the couple had spent many years in Paris and evidently came away soaked in the Second Empire ethos that there was no such thing as too much. The palace, not including the furnishings or decoration, cost 3 million pesetas, or tens of millions in today's dollars. While there is some debate, the lead architect is generally considered to be Carlos Colubi. Some contend that Kalubi was merely adapting the plans of Flemish architect Adolf Ulmbrecht, or that Kalubi was the initial architect but replaced by Ulmbrecht in 1879. The three-story white loam- limestone exterior is neo-baroque, with a monumental sculpted family crest looming on top. Recalling the example of the famous or infamous medicis, every room has its own mythological ceiling painting, painted by some of Madrid's most notable painters at the time Francisco Perdilla, Casto Placencia, Alejandro Ferrant, Manuel Dominguez, Valeriano Dominguez Bacur, Jaramano Suñol, and Francisco Amerigo, and I'm just going to say, Seriously, my middle school Spanish came out on this one, and I think I did pretty damn good. I hope you guys think so too. Tapestries were ordered from Gobelins, and carpets from the Spanish Royal Tapestry F- Factory. Fabrics were from Lyon, lacquered furniture from Vernis Martin, and sculptures by Carriar Belus. Although construction began in 1872, the house was not ready for occupation until 1884. Even then, the interior decoration would not be completed until 1890. The family lived first on the third floor and then the mezzanine once that was finished. The piano room was the last floor to be finished. On October 28, 1901, Royamunda died and just six months later, Jose died at the age of 69 from a lung condition, which, of course, the rumor mill would attribute it to a self-inflicted shotgun wound. The status-enhancing Chateau was no more than a glittering sepulchre. But, oh, what glitter! French, of course, again, brass lamps, illuminate the hallways of the piano room, crammed full of polished dark marble and a rib vault ceiling uplit to show off gold mosaic ceiling decorations. This was the epitome of excess. Through a set of sleek black and gold doors, one would enter the dining room where 22-carat gold mosaics frame More silk tapestries, two nearly life-size bronze semi-nudes holding candelabras rest on a hulking Portuguese red marble fireplace, the largest in the house, by the way. While most of the palace's rooms' exuberance and abundant decorations are voyeuristic fun, the show shopper, the show stopper, cause can you tell I've been drinking? Is the chinese room adjoining the dining room and used for smoking and card playing? The profusion of showy materials and ornamentation that came to define the second empire was, well, simply put, a hot mess. However, the rise of eclecticism, you know, a mixture of different historical styles, inspired some truly remarkable buildings, decorative objects, and interior design. And the Palacio Linares and its Chinese room is chief among them. Mercury red lacquered walls imported from China, edged with black and gold, dominate the room. All I can think of is that Fifty Shades of Grey with the red room. Anyways, anyways, so your black and gold dominate the room and they contrast sharply with the gossamer-like hand-painted rosé silk panel landscape scenes. The interior-facing sides of the doors have ditched the Baroque and Rococo styles of their peers and are instead decorated with beautiful inlaid wood carvings depicting a vaguely Chinese village scene. The room's real prize are the sensuous gold dragons winding around the window casings. One can only imagine how provoking this room would have been while slightly inebriated. Wreathed in smoke, it might have taken years for a visitor to catch some of its finer details, such as the out-of-place Greek key running along it waist-high on the wall, or the arms of the brass chandelier that are actually dragons, or the comparatively simple yet lovely silk ceiling panel decked out in pastel and gold paneling and crystal chandeliers typical of the Rococo revival, the reception hall on the other side of the Chinese room, well, is one giant twinkling Easter egg. That's right. Visitors arriving for the fin de sickel ball would have continued from the reception room into an antechamber resplendent with a hand-painted neo-Arabic pendant vault ceiling of red gold, and green, with inset coffers of mesmerizing swirls of gold, purple, and green. The room ushered guests on through Fabergé egg-like doors and milk chocolate and, yes, gold. Why so much gold, you ask? Well, the Lenars were a striving couple in an era of new wealth and the tumult for the aristocracy in Spain. They had only received the title of Marquis in 1873 by the soon-to-be-deposed Amadeo I and would keep this new social prominence by being major financial backers of Alfonso XII's restoration to the the throne. The family had previously lived in an area called Cuatro Caminos and they chose as the site of their palace land which had been a silver mill. In the mil- middle of the Carlist Wars, the country was perpetually on the verge of violence and chaos. While today, the Gran Vía is a dramatic avenue flanked by theatrical architecture, for a long time, it was a wasteland. In the latter half of the 19th century, however, this is where the new bourgeois built their palaces. Madrid's own version of the mans is popping up around the Parc Monceau in Paris. Indeed, Madrid had her own version of Baron Haussmann and José de Salamanca, the Marquis de Salamanca, who was responsible for much of the expansion of Madrid. Ubiquitous marble, a fancy new title, and a hot address only go so far. If anyone harbored any doubt about the stupendous wealth of the couple or their willingness to spend it... Those doubts would dissipate the moment a visitor stepped into the Lennartes ballroom. Gold, 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 and more gold. Everywhere you look, the oval-shaped ballroom is drowning in gold. Milk chocolate and gold fluted columns topped by gold Corinthian capitals, a gold frieze and cornice, golden bare-breasted women flanking doors and windows, who are also cased in gold. The trims on the alcoves, all gold, nearly eclipsing the paintings in them by Pradea, who also did the lively one on the ceiling titled, The Lesson of Love. Trying to take in the room gold was possibly a more overwhelming color when accented by adjacent tones like russet, as opposed to contrasts like black, white, or blue. So, too, the Linares' obsession with brass lighting until seeing the luster afforded the ballroom by the Medisa-esque brass chandeliers hanging on velvet ropes. Even Eugenio Rodriguez Ruiz de la Escalara, Monte Cristo, by the way, remarked upon the lighting's effect saying it gave the room an indescribable sumptuousness. Well, you know it's got to be pretty freaking awesome, when a writer can't come up with something better. Waiting on the other side of the ballroom, though, through a less remarkable antechamber, is the family's office. The warm, wood-paneled room with a coffered faux-wood ceiling of receding octagons of red and gold serve as a display case for the unforgettable portrait of the Marquesa, and hanging to the right of her is Predia's matching one for her husband, who... Looks mildly stoned with badly attached mutton chops dangling from his jaw You know, so pretty much any guy from that period, right? Apparently despite her corpulence and his general air of halitotic old man These portraits were well considered very forgiving makes you wonder what they really looked like, right? only recently returned to the mansion, the portrait suffered the same ignominious 20th century fate as the palace. When the Lenares died, they had no children, so they left the palacio to his goddaughter, Raimundo Avetila y Aguado. The palace was abandoned and Raimunda and her family treated the palace as a gift fund. They took what they wanted. While some of the painting's journeys remain a mystery, it is believed that they were shipped off to Venezuela in 1958. In 1992, they were returned to Madrid for an exhibition at the National Museum of Romanticism, which ended in 1993. And for the next 11 years, they were held hostage at the Barajas Airport due to a lack of clear legal ownership, until 2004 when they were placed in the Prado. After years of legal dispute, the restored paintings finally made their way to the Casa de America in 2016 and were unveiled in the spring of 2017. The mansion did not fare much better. It went unused by those who inherited and was reportedly only spared from a bombing during the Civil War because of its use as a hospital. In the 50s, it began to be rented out to the private entities including Transmitterranea and SECA. In the 70s, it was slated to be raised, but it was saved by the Spanish government when it declared the mansion a good of public interest. And while in a state of decay, most of the important details remained untouched since the day the Linareses died. After being used in the film Patrimonio Nacional by the director Luis García Berlanga, part of a trilogy reportedly based on the Linares, it was given to the Spanish government as part of a land swap by the industrialist Emiliano Ravilla. The government then began an ambitious restoration of the palace in order for it to be reopened as the Casa de America in 1992 for the quint of Spain's discovery of the Americas. Because the mansion had been virtually empty for so long, Medrelinos would reportedly always be trying to climb the fences and sneak a look inside at the deteriorating grandeur. In the words of the historians Francisco Azarin and Isabel Gia in La Castellanena, in Censura de Poder de Palacio de Linares a la Torre Picasso, the empty appearance demanded legends and mysteries, and so there soon started to be legends about ghosts that wandered the halls. In the April 2nd, 1989 issue of El Pais, the vicious rumor about the Linares' incestuous relations were made public in a breathless piece by Luis Escobar that dubbed the palace Fruit of an Incest, and claimed that the reason the Marquis' rooms were on the ground floor and basement while the Marquesas were in the piano room was to enforce their pope-ordained chastity. At the same time, the house became the source, or target, of parapsychologists who claimed that the mansion was a focus point for psychophonies, to the point that workers working on the restoration claimed that they heard footsteps and something whispering, I had a daughter. The morbid fascination went so far that one individual, Carmen Sánchez de Castro sent a report to Madrid's city council with 283 photographs taken of the palace's interior of which 22 he alleged had clear manifestations of the paranormal. Sánchez de Castro went on to tell El Paz one of the people who accompanied me entered the next room I did not do anything but go in and I was thrown back as if a wind pushed me. When you stare at the portraits of the long-dead Linares, such conflicted feelings are, well, inevitable. These two built themselves a temple to the finest things in life that would make a medieval king look like a pauper, but the world outside was seething over worsening inequality in the industrial age. For those who find such ostentatious displays of consumption hard to stomach, there is one morbid morality tale. Often, the men and women who build these ego-strokers never live to enjoy them for long, and attempts to maintain them in perpetuity in any form other than a museum, well, they prove ruinous for the descendants, or force them, God forbid, to marry outside their class, well, you know, as the British did with the dollar princesses. Only one of Newport's cliff walk mansions remains in the hands of the family that built it. After spending millions on Marble House, William K. Vanderbilt lost it in his divorce only to see his ex-wife toss it aside for her new husband's castle down the street. Gertrude Rhinelander Waldo never lived in her famed New York palace and died hundreds of thousands in debt. Evelyn Wash McLean, fabled owner of the Hope Diamond and Star of the East, saw her treasures auctioned off by her heirs. California robber baron Mark Hopkins died before his 40-room Gothic mansion on Knob Hill was finished, and his partner, Leland Stanford, turned his home next door into a memorial for his dead son. George Bolt's wife died before his love letter castle in upstate New York was finished, so he abandoned it. Ludwig the 2nd died in mysterious circumstances and never got to enjoy his copy of Versailles or his fairy tale castle in the mountains even 50 cents Connecticut mansion has put 3 separate owners in or on the verge of bankruptcy and perhaps the one with the most joy at someone else's misery is Nicholas Fouquet who didn't even have a full year to enjoy vaux le vicomte before Louis Fourteenth stripped him of everything he owned. Nor is nowhere is the cliché about what money cannot buy more apparent than in the final stop on the tour, the family's chapel decorated in the byzantine revival style the chapel's floors are covered in marble geometric patterns a pietra dura dado with more intricate geometric patterns are topped by carved wood iberian arches inset with portraits of the apostles less junus of course in a lunette at the left wall francisco amerigo painted san remundo de fiterro receiving from alfonso VI of Castile the Castle of Calatrava, a reference to the ancestors of the Marquesa. The journalist Torcuato Luca de Tena, in his investigation, would claim that the Marquesa was not, in fact, the daughter of a cigar seller or the illegitimate daughter of the father of the Marquis, but rather from a noble Galician family with ancestors who were knights of Calatrava but if one stands in the center of the chapel and looks up, a large iron lamp hangs from a golden ceiling. For baptisms, the ceiling would be opened up and the lamp would be brought up and folded so that a baby could be lowered down just like a baby from heaven. And unfortunately, the Lenarises had no chance. And with that, my darlings, we have come to the end of our episode, and I do thank you for joining me here today. I hope that you'll take some time to reach out to me today and share your thoughts on what you think. You can always reach the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have any suggestions for some future shows, or you just want to tell me what you think, or hell, if you want to call me a loser, drop me a line. And with that note, That's all the time we have for today. I thank you once again for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And don't forget to tune in next time. See you next time, my heathens. And we are done with all the places we're going to visit next week. I'm coming up with either aliens or ghosts or something. No more visiting places. We're coming up with something fun next time. So send me your ideas. I will try to incorporate them. Love you, my darlings. Have a fabulous week. sugarcoat shit (laughs) this is renegade talk radio renegade talk radio